Hey, thanks for tuning in here where we're Rockbridge Online, Rockbridge Digital, whatever device you're viewing this from, wherever you're viewing this from. Hey, I just want to say welcome and thanks for joining us over this Memorial Day weekend. I want to especially welcome all of our Spanish speakers or those of you who prefer to hear the Word of God in Spanish. I'm excited about this opportunity just to be able to speak to our church, which is a church of people from all walks of life. So on this Memorial Day weekend, we, we pause and we remember some of the great sacrifices for that folks made to uh, preserve our ability to live here in, in a free country. And this is just the Marines from the Marine Memorial, which is an iconic picture of the sacrifice that some of our servicemen and women have made in preservation of our freedom. And this is from Iwo Jima which was one of the crucial battles in World War II. The Marines fought in World War II for 43 months, yet in one month at Iwo Jima, they suffered one-third of their total casualties. In the cemetery on Iwo Jima, there's written this statement that says, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. And so we pause today, this weekend, to remember their sacrifice. And you know what, though, as we all think about this word sacrifice on Memorial Day weekend, we have to recognize something about our humanity. That doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you even really believe. We're all really moved by and and we're moved by acts of great sacrifice, whether it's our military personnel, our healthcare workers, our first responders, especially during this recent pandemic and what's all been taking place with that. Or or even like the sacrifice that like uh, Steph Curry makes of how many times a day He's shooting three-pointers to become one of the greatest shooters in the NBA. We're just moved by acts of great sacrifice. And in thinking about this, I realized, you know, anything of worth or anything of value is at some point going to require sacrifice. It's going to require sacrifice to have a great marriage. It's going to require sacrifice to, to have a great nation. It's going to require sacrifice to preserve and, and promote certain ideals. So anything like worth value is going to require sacrifice. But for most of us, when we think about sacrifice, it's occasionally, it's situationally. It's occasionally and it's situationally. But what we're going to talk about today is the fact that I really believe, and and the Word of God would point us in this direction as well, that our nation, we all need sacrifice. We need a group of people or we need people who are willing to sacrifice for the right reasons and for the right purposes. And when you think about the church, here's one thing we need to realize about the church, that being sacrificial is supposed to be normal for the church. Not, not occasional and not situational. Now, now, that may not be your view of the church. And when I say church, I'm talking about the people of God. That's, the, that's who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a building or an hour. I'm talking about the people of God where being sacrificial is supposed to be normal. Now, for a lot of people, when you think of church, you think of your preference, your comfort, your time where you sit in the service, and that's church for you. But when we get a biblical view of the church and we understand how the church was brought into existence, being sacrificial is supposed to be normal. And the beautiful thing that I have seen about Rockbridge in in all of our locations and now being on a digital platform as well 
is that we have done some incredibly sacrificial things, whether it's responding to this crisis, responding to the storms and the tornadoes that, that really affected three of our, our communities, how we've tried to be a neighbor, how we've tried to help with our benevolence ministry, how we've seen people give generously and sacrificially so we could continue to be the church even in the midst of economic uncertainty. And, and I believe as we all are thinking about when are we going to get to meet again and when are we going to get to do what we typically think of as church, here's what I want us to believe and what I want us to know, Rockbridge, that our communities do not really need to see us meeting together in our seats, but they rather need to see us out sacrificing in the streets. And to me, that is Jesus's vision and commission to the church. It's not that, hey, we're defined by where we sit and when we gather, but that we're defined by we're out in our communities with a spirit of love and a spirit of sacrifice. Now, now here's the question we're going to try to resolve today. Who signs up for sacrifice? N- not just as a, a, an occasional sacrifice, but normal, everyday, day-in, day-out kind of lifestyle sacrifice. And how does this become our lifestyle? How does this become our lifestyle? And so we're going to journey with with one of the famous characters of the Old Testament, King David, and see him do something stupid and sinful, and then see him be moved to become a person of sacrifice. So this story is found in 2 Samuel 24. And here's what's happened. Here's the background. David has conducted a a sinful census. He's counted all of his military folks and he's counted them up. And this was against God's will and against God's wishes. Now, there's not really a clear explanation of why this census was wrong or why it was sinful. But what seems to be uh, possibilities are that David was putting his faith in the numbers of men rather than the favor of God, or that David had a spirit of discontentment and he was getting ready to go out in conquest rather than being content at the time and the place and the pace that God had him operating. So whatever the reason, David knows he sinned. And let's look at his response as we move forward to become people of sacrifice. So David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now now here's the first thing we need to just notice. This seems like what we might label a small sin or not a really a big deal or just something, hey, just confess it and move on from it. But he says I've sinned greatly. Because he realizes he sinned against God who is holy and who is pure and who is perfect. And, and he realized he's offended God in what he's done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. So, so what he does is he actually takes his guilt to God. A lot of us, when we experience guilt, we run from God. Uh, we retreat within ourselves and we say, I can't go to God or I can't go to church until I deal with or I get better or I improve or I make progress. And David just goes straight to God and say, God, I've messed up. I've sinned and, and I want you to take away my guilt. When David got up in the morning, the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Go and say to David, this is what God says through the prophet, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to offer you, I will offer you three choices. You choose one of them and I will do it to you. This is punishment. This is consequence. This is justice. So Gad went to David, told him the choices and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come on your land? Do you want to flee from your foes three months while they pursue you? Or do you want to have a plague in your land for three days? Now consider carefully what answer you should take back to the one who sent me. And David answered Gad. He said, I have great anxiety. 
Please let us fall into the Lord's hands. We are going to entrust this to God because his mercies are great, but don't let me fall into human hands. I, I want to entrust my sin. I want to entrust my sinful, precarious position into God's hands, which is an incredible, incredible display of trust in the mercies of God. And so it, we have in view here that David has sinned, he sinned greatly, and he goes to God in, in his guilt, and he goes to God and pleads for mercy. Now, what is not a debate in this text is what David deserves. David knows he deserves to be punished. David knows there needs to be a consequence. David's not debating what he deserves. He knows within a, without a shadow of doubt that he is a sinner and his only hope is that God would be merciful. And so there's a view of God that's presented in this passage that is incredibly wonderful and incredibly beautiful. And it's sort of like this flower that I'm going to illustrate. The stem of this flower would be God's justice. And God's justice does not allow him to, to wink and nod and sweep stuff under the rug. Justice has to be met. The right thing has to be done. Judgment has to occur. But then the flower is the blossoming or the beauty of God's mercies. So David realizes that the stem of God's justice requires a punishment, but he knows his ultimate hope is that a beautiful flower, a beautiful blossom of God's mercy would result. And so that is David's hope. And he doesn't try to take away the justice of God just to get to the grace and mercy of God like a lot of us do when we say, hey, it's not really a big deal. Uh, you know, sin's not a big deal. At the same time, he doesn't hide or, or, or act like God is not gracious and merciful and just think, man, God's going to destroy me. God's out to get me. When's the other shoe going to drop? If I go back into the church building whenever I can, man, the building's going to fall upon me. He doesn't do that. It's both of these things. The justice of God, the stem of God's justice blossoming into a beautiful flower of God's mercy. And the rest of the story continues. So the Lord sent a plague. So it's a God-sent plague of, of judgment and consequence for the sin. On Israel from that morning until the appointed time, and from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. And, and this is when a lot of people don't like the Old Testament or don't understand what God is doing. And most of the time when we don't understand the Old Testament is because we don't understand the ugliness and seriousness of sin. And the Old Testament shows us how ugly and serious sin is, but it's going to point us, as we'll see in a moment, to the New Testament when God provided the ultimate blossom of mercy to solve the sin problem. So then the angel of the Lord extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, but the Lord relented. So here we have now God's justice and all of this death and this plague blossoming into a flower of beautiful mercy. So God relented. Here's the flower concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand now. And so the angel of the Lord was then at the fleshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now, when we read this story, and, and when we go through consequence, and we go through suffering, he, eventually we're going to reach a crossroads. And the crossroads that we're going to reach, and the tension that we're going to feel in our minds, or in our conscience, or in our spirit, is the crossroads of deserve. And we'll say things like this, those 70,000 people uh, did not deserve that, or they did not deserve to be punished, or they got, the punishment didn't fit the crime, and we'll go through all of those kind of things, because, you know, in our mind, 
everybody sort of starts out good and starts out innocent. And, and so nothing bad should happen to basically innocent and basically good people. That's not the view that's presented in Scripture. And that's not the view that David walks through this situation with because David understands God's justice and holiness, but he also banks and bets on the mercy of God. So the church, remember, we're getting, trying to get the church to a place of sacrifice, right? So the church knows what we deserve, which is the justice of God, but the church decides to bank everything on God's mercy, everything on God's mercy. No one is debating what, if they're getting what they deserve. Everyone is hoping and banking on God's mercy. So they understand the justice of God and they're hoping in the mercies of God. And this brings us to kind of two views of, of how we even read the Bible or how we even relate to God. There's like a me-centered view and the me-centered view focuses on the suffering, not in an empathetic, compassionate way, but fo focuses on the suffering in a confused, I don't understand, it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right, and it doesn't seem just. And we question the justice and the holiness of God. But the God-centered view is that we're amazed by God's mercy. That no matter which way you look at this story, the people of Israel are not getting what they deserve. They're not getting what they deserve. They're not getting just the justice of God. They're getting the justice of God, but it's blossoming into a beautiful flower of mercy. And those two things give us a com more comprehensive understanding of who God is. And so David is watching all of this, and his heart begins to get affected. And so he sees the angel in verse 17 now. He sees the angel striking the people, and he says to the Lord, he says, Look, I am the one who has sinned. I made the decision to, to conduct the census. I am the one who has done wrong. But we all know that when leaders sin, like Adam sin, or fathers sin, or leaders of companies or countries sin, it affects everyone, right? But he says, I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who has done wrong. And so he says, but these sheep, what have they done? So he says, please let your hand be against me and my family. And, and I'll take the punishment. I'll, I'll bear the cost. I'll, I'll, I'll absorb your justice. The, the anger you have at, at the sin. And he doesn't, it's, again, we're not questioning God's justice and mercy. So Gad came to David that day and he says to him, he says, go up and set an altar. To the Lord. So there's got to be sacrifice. There's got to be death, right, to pay for sin. We see that in the Old Testament. That's pointing us to Jesus' death. It says, go up to the altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And this location we learn from 2 Chronicles 3.1 is the exact location where Solomon would build, build his temple, a place of sacrifice. It's the same location historically where Abraham would take his son Isaac up onto the top of Mount Moriah to conduct a sacrifice that God stopped him from performing and then God provided a substitute the ram that was caught in the thicket and a lot of scholars believe this is also the place in Jerusalem that Jesus was crucified so something bigger than than just this little scene in history is in the mind of God as he preserves this for us in scripture so David goes up in obedience to God's command just as the Lord had commanded and so now what we begin to see come in view and this is why this story in the Old Testament is much bigger than this story and it's pointing to the grander story of 
what God has done for us. But we also we see in this story substitutionary, sacrificial suffering that points us to the cross. David is willing to say, I will be the substitute. I will take all the punishment upon myself. Don't inflict it on the rest of the people. And David is willing to pay a sacrificial cost of suffering. And all of this takes place. It's pointed out to us numerous times in the story. Uh, This altar is to be built on the threshing floor of Aruna. And so all of this sort of starts to take the shape of a cross because on the cross, Jesus substituted himself for us to pay for our sin on the cross Jesus died a sacrificial death and then we even have the physical location in view here in 2nd Samuel 24 the Old Testament points to the New Testament so what we see in David is this David is willing to be the one and so in a very Christ-like step he asks to take the place he asks to bear the the cost he asks to absorb the justice and the wrath of God And this is very Christ-like. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God took the sinless Jesus, who did nothing wrong, and poured into him all of our sins. Then an exchange took place. He put God's goodness into us. So our sin onto Jesus, the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness onto us. This is the substituting of Jesus in our place. He took our sin. He died the death we deserved. But in this story, we also see David is imperfect, imperfect, because he's the one that that caused this problem. He's the one that made the fateful decision, the sinful decision. And we see that, hey, we need a better king than David. We need someone who can offer a better sacrifice than David. So David's imperfection as a king and as a substitute also points us to Jesus, Where the book of Hebrews says this, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, which is what David was going to do, is going to do at the threshing floor of Aruna. And he's offering the same sacrifices again and again and again, which can never really take away sins. Never take away sins. So what David's going to do to, in, as a sacrificial gesture at the altar on the threshing floor of Aruna it, it is going to be a temporary fix to the sin problem. But our high priest offered himself a perfect sacrifice because he's sinless to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand and by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And so David is imperfect and we need a perfect sacrifice and a perfect king. And so I'm going to just stop right here and ask this question. Have you ever trusted Jesus to be the sacrifice for you and accepted his sacrifice on behalf of you and instead of you and had that exchange take place where all of your sins and all of your rebellion against God, you, you trusted God to put those on his, on his son, right? We read it. He did this. It's good for all time so it could include everything you've done and everything I've done. And that you and I now can move into the family of God and then you receive the righteousness of Christ. And look, I would love if if that's you and you're like God's speaking and pounding on your heart and saying, hey, come to me. I've taken care of your sin problem, your guilt problem, and and I am the, 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 the sacrifice you need. 
Just text Christ to this number on the screen or go to robberies.cc next steps. We would love to share with you. We'd love to help you embrace the greatest news of all time and follow the greatest leader, king, and savior of all time, which is King Jesus. Now, the story doesn't stop there. Because remember, we're trying to get to sacrifice. Not just occasional sacrifice, but everyday lifestyle of sacrifice. So the story continues, and, and David still got this, this notion of setting up an altar in the threshing floor of Aruna, which is the place that Isaac was going to be sacrificed until God intervened and provided a substitute. It's the place where the temple of Solomon was going to be built, where a bunch of sacrifices, temporary sacrifices were going to be made. And it could be the place where Jesus Christ himself died that once for all sacrifice for all of us. So David now is going to go and try to secure this threshing floor and construct this altar. So Aruna goes out and meets him and says to the king, he says, why have you come to me? Why have you come to your servant? And David replied, well, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so the plague on the people may be halted. Well, Aruna said to David, my Lord, the king may take whatever he wants and he may offer it, he may have it. Here are, the offer, here's the, here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood, your majesty. Aruna gives everything here to the king. It's free, take it. That sounds like a great deal. It's convenient. It makes, it, it makes everything easier. But David's not in the mood for convenient or easy. David's heart's been changed. So he answers Aruna. He says, no. I insist on buying it from you for a price, for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That, that, that would not magnify the justice and mercy of God. That would not reflect the sacrifice that God has done for me and the mercy that God has given to me that I did not deserve, that my people don't deserve, that my kingdom doesn't deserve. So I am not going to offer to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. And he built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord was receptive to the prayer. Prayers that go through sacrifice are heard in heaven. Our prayers go through the sacrifice of Jesus. Then the Lord was receptive to prayer for the land and the plague on Israel ended. And what a picture, what a pattern of the problem of sin and the provision and the pardon of God. That is a beautiful picture of justice blossoming into mercy. So the other thing we see about David is he's now unwilling not to sacrifice. He's unwilling now not to sacrifice because he has been grabbed, captured, captivated by the grace, the justice, and the mercy of God. He's unwilling not to sacrifice. And I don't think you can explain David's decision to forego a free threshing floor, an altar, and wood, and everything involved apart from God. It's inexplicable apart from God. You can't explain what David did without explaining the justice and the mercy of God. And, and, and David does this not under coercion. It's, it's free. David 
started the story as someone who made a stupid, sinful decision and ends the story as someone who is becoming more like God or more like Jesus because they're becoming more sacrificial in a way that reflects the worth and value of God. So he's not sacrificing because the situation demands it. The guy was going to give him a free field. He's sacrificing because God deserves that kind of response to him. And so David's sacrifice is responsive or reflective of who God is. So, so imagine like I've got a ball and I throw it up against a wall and, and that ball's going to bounce and go somewhere because it hits the wall. And so when our lives impact the mercy and justice of God, the bounce, the ricochet is one of sacrifice. So it sort of looks like this. We see the justice and mercy of God. We, we know what we deserve. We're not even debating God over what we deserve. He is so holy. He's so pure. And yet, His mercy is so beautiful. And that grabs us and says, man, this God is worthy. This God is amazing. This God is beautiful. And I am willing to sacrifice to show that worth to the world. I'm willing to do things that are inexplicable to the rest of my fellow humankind, mankind, womankind, in order to show God's worth and value. And we're just now looking for opportunities. We're looking for opportunities to show the worth of God. So God, yes, we're willing to sacrifice, to show who you are, to show your worth to a world that needs it. Now, if we just looked at this and started our day like this, that we woke up and the first thing we did is just got our minds, not on what we deserve, not on you know what me, myself, and I want, but we got our minds on the justice of God, what we deserve, the mercy of God, we don't get what we deserve, which takes us to the worth and the beauty of God. And then we become willing to sacrifice for Him. And God, I, I, I'm just looking for, this day I'm looking for an opportunity. I'm looking for an opportunity. We don't wake up demanding our rights. We don't wake up demanding that we get what I want. we want. We wake up in a pool, in a garden of beautiful, overflowing fountains of love and grace, flowers of justice and mercy that grab our hearts and say, this God is worth it and I'm willing to sacrifice for Him because He has sacrificed Himself for me and I want an opportunity this day and I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to do anything that doesn't cost me something in order to show the worth of my God. So the church, we're not trying to be good enough. We're not. But God's been merciful enough. And so we want to show his worth. And how do we show his worth? Through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. Now where could those opportunities be? I I see a couple of opportunities in our marriages, or in our relationships in general. Do you know when marriages break down? It's when I start to give my spouse what I think she or he deserves. I become the arbitrator of justice. I, I, I become the, the holy one in the relationship, and they become the less than holy or the less deserving one in the relationship. And so I quit relating to my spouse on the, beha- on the basis of what Jesus has done for me and the mercy he's given to me, and marriages then disintegrate 
all relationships disintegrate. What if our marriages, what if our relationships were marked more by the justice and mercy we have received from God in Christ rather than us trying to figure out and punish people or give them what we think they deserve? Another area of sacrifice is in the area of money, which we see in this story with David. So many times money brings out the worst in us, but money can also bring out the best in us when we show ourselves that, hey, I'm not enamored with money. I just want to use my money to show the worth of God. So I'll give sacrificially and freely. The mission of God, where we have to go out of our way or be intentional along the way to share the news of God's mercy and justice in Jesus Christ and to give the love in terms of practical good deeds for people. It's not convenient to go out on Saturday morning and do a food drop. It's not convenient to, get, to become a percentage sacrificial generous giver. It's not easy to do those things, but God is worth it. And when the gospel of justice and mercy in Jesus grab our hearts, capture our eye, and we're enamored with that beauty, these things come easier and easier and become a part of who we are and thus a part of what we do. And in our everyday moments, we go to the store, the person that's checking us out, they look a little blue. And so instead of being in a rush, we pause, we sacrifice 30 seconds to try to give them a blessing, try to give them a smile, try to give them encouragement. We're in the office or we're on a Zoom meeting if we're teleworking. And we just have a moment to touch base with people and see how we can meet a need, see how we can sacrifice time in prayer for people we're meeting with and interacting with. Because here's what I know. Everybody needs to see the justice of God and the blossoming beautiful flower of his mercy seen most clearly on the cross where Jesus died for us and Jesus died instead of us. So however God would move you to take a next step, to get involved in church and hope, get involved in regular, consistent giving sacrificially, to just say, hey, I want to be more a part of Rockbridge and maybe checking out RB360. Whatever next step you need to take. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Give him the steering wheel of your life that you realize, hey, what you deserve is justice and justice would be hell and justice would be punishment. But you see in Jesus this beautiful flower of mercy that he took your punishment. He satisfied the justice of God and you see him and you're ready to give him the steering wheel of your life. As the spirit of God directs your heart, would you step with him? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the sacrifices of so many service personnel, men and women, that allow us, God, to be in a free land today. God, we pray for our country today, and we know our country needs to see sacrifice that points them to your worth, to your justice, to your love, to your grace, to your mercy. God, help this church, we the people of Rockbridge Community Church, to be a people who willingly go to places of sacrifice because of who you are and what you've done in Christ. Whose name we pray, amen.